0: The reading this morning is Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. We'll begin reading in verse 32 and read to the end of the chapter. Mark 1, beginning in verse 32. When evening came, after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city had gathered at the door. And he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. Simon and his companions searched for him. They found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. He said to them, Let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby, so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. And he went into their synagogues throughout all Galilee, preaching and casting out the demons. And a leper came to Jesus, beseeching him and falling on his knees before him and saying, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Moved with compassion, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, to be cleansed. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. And he sternly warned him and immediately sent him away. And he said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded as a testimony to them. But he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the news around to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city but stayed out in the unpopulated areas and they were coming to him from everywhere. If you think back with me for a moment to the complimentary reading from 2 Kings 5 and the story of Naaman, We've titled this morning, First Things First. And just as a brief reminder regarding that story that we looked at earlier, Elisha had sent a messenger to Naaman who had leprosy that was incurable, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh will be restored for you, and you'll be clean. And we might think that Naaman's response would be, okay, that sounds good. But Naaman was furious and he went away and said, behold, I thought he will surely come out and say to me, go and stand and call on the name of the Lord and wave his hand over the place and cure me. I mean, could I not wash in any of these other rivers? They're better than the Jordan anyway. And Naaman's servants come alongside, being servants and underneath him. Surely there's some trepidation as they come close to him and say, had the prophet told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? Then why not obey the simple command, wash and be clean? Naaman went down, he dipped himself into the Jordan seven times according to the word of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. The foundational requirements in life, in every area of life, but especially when it comes to spiritual life, are absolutely necessary. Naaman is expecting to hear some dramatic expectation or see some dramatic work happening when actually it's just the simple, go down to the Jordan and dip seven times. Wash yourself, wash this leprosy, this disease off of you. If we were to think about it using a different phrase rather than first things first, we might say keep the main things the main things. We are quick, probably quicker in our culture than any other previously, to want to run ahead and want to see the results without doing the necessary work. We see this in all kinds of areas of our lives, everything from when we're in early years of mathematics and the expectation of showing our work. I always, always, always got in trouble for not showing my work and being too fast and just writing the answers down and making careless mistakes. That's what I always heard. These are careless mistakes. So because it was a failure to do the first things first, to keep the main things the main things. Now, this is true not only for us as individuals, as humans, but it was true for our Lord as well. And the passage that we're looking at today, verses 35 through 45 in Mark chapter 1, we see this. We see a priority in the life of Jesus to prayer. We see a primacy in the life of Jesus with regard to proclamation. And that results in the emphasis that we all see in this reading, the healing of the leper what I've called the pity of personal touch. But it didn't begin there. It began with prayer and proclamation and resulted in the healing of the leper. So let's consider point number one first. Verses 35 to 37, the priority of prayer in the life of our Lord. In the early morning, verse 35, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. This is a constant pattern of Jesus. He was praying at his baptism. He withdrew in Luke chapter 5 from his disciples to pray. Pardon, from the crowds to pray. He prayed all night prior to choosing his disciples. He slipped away after feeding the 5,000 in order to spend time in prayer with his father. At the moment of the transfiguration... Jesus was praying and communicating with his Father. When the 70 that were sent out returned to Jesus, he's praising God in prayer for that. Time and again throughout Jesus' life, we see him having a priority of prayer. This is Jesus, the Son of God, who is truly God, and he did not render... Independence render himself independent from the use of the means that God had provided or commanded he didn 't see himself as beyond the need for keeping the first things first, doing those prior, prioritizing those simple things that were expected to do continually. He was God, but it didn 't render him independent of the use of the means. As a man. In fact, in John 5, this is what Jesus says the Son can do nothing of Himself unless it's something He sees the Father doing. How does He see the Father doing it? Because He's in communion with Him. Whatever the Father does, Jesus continues, these things the Son also does in like manner. He's living a life mimicking what He sees His Father doing. Or again, in John's Gospel, the words that I say to you, Jesus says, I do not speak on my own initiative but the father abiding in me does his works. So Jesus is in communion with the father. He's abiding in God the Father, and as a result what he says and what he does is flowing forth. From that, he is dependent on this life of prayer. Imagine this with me for a moment. Colossians 1:16 is true of Jesus. By Jesus, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. That is this Jesus, yet he prayed. Yet he spent time in prayer with his Father. This Jesus, who is holy, innocent, Undefiled, separate from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, the writer of Hebrews tells us, prayed. Not just once or twice, but time and again, in all kinds of different aspects of his life, we find the gospel writers recording for us that Jesus was spending time with his Father. And if Jesus, the Son of God, was dependent, he saw the need to keep the first things first. And give attention to those basic foundational aspects of spiritual life, how much more then should we? A praying master should not have prayerless servants. Let's seek to follow the pattern of Jesus in spending time with our Father. He himself has worn out this path to the mercy seat. Where our Father sits enthroned, he's done it for us. Let's keep that path well worn, going again and again to the throne room of God in prayer. In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a a secluded place. Now, very specifically, this secluded place The original language makes it stand out very clearly. It's the exact place where John the Baptist was preaching. It's that place where Jesus was baptized. It's that place where Jesus was tempted by Satan. It's that place where Jesus was ministered to by angels. It's the wilderness. Jesus got up and got away, whatever it took, to find a place, to find time to spend with his Father. And as a result of Jesus' Seeking to spend time praying to his father, Simon and his companions, verse 36, searched for him. No. Search for him. Sounds like they got up. He's not there. They finished breakfast. Oh, where's Jesus? Let's go wandering around the streets and find him. Um, It's a bit of an anemic translation compared to the actual phrase, which might better be stated. Simon and his companions pursued him. They were hunting for him. They were tracking him down, searching high and low. Where has this Jesus gone? And they find him and say, everyone is looking for you. What they mean is, mainly us, we were worried. We're the ones tracking you down. Everyone else wasn't doing the the hunting and the searching and the tracking and pursuing. They were. But you could blame it on, on the masses. They were interested as well. But it's Simon and his companions. It's these At this point, four new disciples that were looking ferociously for him. Where have you been? It's When they come to him, everyone is looking for you. Included in that is a bit of a backhanded rebuke. Like the audacity to just get up and leave. You left us. Even in this everyone looking for you, the connotation is... Everyone is making, or we specifically, are making a valiant effort, not so much to know where you are or why you've gone there, but it's seeking to control. Rather than find him in order to submit and follow, it's seeking to, to know in order to control. Notice Jesus' response in verse 38. Jesus is up, he's out of the house, into the wilderness, praying. Peter, Andrew, James, and John searching for him, hunting him down, searching high and low. And when they find him, they say, everyone is looking for you. Jesus says, verse 38, let us go somewhere else to the nearby towns so that I may preach there also. That is what I came for. Jesus doesn't say, Fantastic. I was hoping for a crowd to follow me. Let's plan a church. He doesn't say, Yeah, that feels like the right thing to do. Let's bring in the crowds. He doesn't say, Wow, there's no shortage of excitement here. Let's ride the wave of excitement that's been created because of all that happened on the previous Sabbath day morning and evening. We should use this momentum to our advantage. That's not at all the way that Jesus responds. He doesn't plan to return to where he had been. Not at all. He has no plans to capitalize on those relationships or build on that success. But when they come, when the disciples come and say, everyone's looking for you, Jesus says, well, let's get out of here then. (laughs) He is committed. Here's why he says that. He is committed to others also hearing the gospel that he came to preach. That's how he says it. That I may preach there also. Let's go somewhere else to the towns nearby that I may preach there also. That is what I came for. The disciples want to capitalize on his notoriety. They want to take advantage of the enthusiasm. enthusiasm. They feel the need to accommodate the surge in popularity. And I find it helpful to see that it's those that are closest to Jesus that are the greatest danger to his mission. It's not the crowds that are tempting him and suggesting that he sit tight and establish something there locally. It's the disciples. They they blame the search on everyone else. Everyone is looking for you, but it's mainly them. They're the ones who found him. Jesus, Jesus is undeflected from his ministry, his ministry of prayer, and keeping that time carved out, committed to seeking the Lord. And he is undeflected from his ministry of proclaiming the truth of God. Jesus is not willing to allow even success to distract from his divine purpose. He could easily look out and see what has happened over the past 24 or 36 hours and assume this is what I ought to be giving my time and attention to. But he didn't allow even the success of the new earthly ministry being unveiled to distract from the divine purpose and the mission that God had sent him for, the mission that he came to accomplish. So there's priority in the prayer life of our Lord, but there's also a primacy of proclamation in him, we, in his life. We've seen it already in verse 38. Let, let's go preach. That's what I came for. In verse 39, he did that. He went into their synagogues throughout all Galilee, preaching and casting out, Demons. Now, it's worth noting there's some intentionality here of a parallel. As Mark writes in verse 35, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away. In verse 39, he went into their synagogues. He's on the move. He is proclaiming truth and he is looking for lost sheep to call to repentance. Remember, we looked at last week the kingdom of God has arrived. That's what he came to preach. The kingdom is here and now. Jesus says, and he is preaching the gospel of the forgiveness of sins through repentance and toward God and faith in himself, Jesus Christ. The crowds were clamoring for displays of his power, and Jesus refused to be diverted from his mission. He didn't come to promote an agenda. He came to accomplish a, to accomplish a mission that was derived from his relationship with his Father, that relationship that was maintained and continued in prayer. Jesus spends time in prayer with the Father in order to not lose sight of his purpose, to not lose sight of the mission that he came to accomplish, so he doesn't get distracted by all the temporal things that are clamoring, even by... The success, not just worldly success, but spiritual success that was happening in the midst of Jesus' ministry, he maintained the priority of prayer with his Father in order not to be distracted by that to the point that it would cause him to veer off of the path that he was sent to stay on to accomplish. Whether Jesus was in a house, or on the mountainside, or in a synagogue, or in a boat out to sea. The work that Jesus gave himself to was preaching and teaching. We see that throughout the gospel writers. It is the proclamation of truth. The way that he says it in verse 38, that is what I came for, to proclaim the truth. Why did Jesus come? According to Jesus, to proclaim the truth. Yes, he came to save sinners. There's truth in that. He came to proclaim the truth that we are sinners and we are in need of a Savior. When the Apostle's writing to the church at Thessalonica, chapter 5, 1 Thessalonians, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit. And then the apostle writes this, do not despise prophetic utterances. The apostle feels the need, writing to the church there at Thessalonica, do not despise the proclamation of the truth. Why not? Because it is the primary mission of Jesus. It's the primary mission of Jesus' people. We ought to be people of the truth and people who are proclaiming the truth with with our lips and with our lives. Everything that we do should be proclaiming the truth of God. That God sent His Son into the world. That the kingdom is now here. And everyone who has breath in their lungs owes God repentance and faith. A priority in prayer leads to a primacy and proclamation, and our story continues in verse 40. A leper came to Jesus, beseeching him and falling on his knees before him and saying, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now, we read all the way through verse 45 earlier, and one thing that's obvious here as Mark is telling this story, he's not providing a lot of details. Uh, when that's true for Mark across the board, throughout the entirety of his gospel account, but here specifically, there are so many questions left unanswered, not even considered. It appears by Mark, but there's a reason it seems to why Mark is doing what he's doing. You can think we can think about it this way. It, An an elaborate frame can detract from a great painting. Mark is not painting details. He's not putting an elaborate frame on this story, but rather is laser focused on the pure relevant facts of the story. That's all he's interested in. Here are the facts. Boom, 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 boom. A leper came to Jesus. That's almost unfathomable as we're going to see here in a moment how that could even happen. And so we can ask Mark all day about those details and he just left them out in order that we might see the particular relevant facts that he includes. He's a leper. This man who came is a leper. There are at least 72 different diseases that Could be classified as leprosy. There's the first question, or the first 72. (laughs) Which one is it? We just don't know. What we do know is that leprosy during this time was a tragic and disastrous disease, completely incurable. Those who were infected were hopeless. And it was a disease that affects the whole of the individual. It doesn't just affect one aspect here or there. All of who you are is affected by this awful disease. Listen to this quote, this describing leprosy. Hair falls from the head and eyebrows. Fingers, nails, and toenails loosen, decay, and drop off. Joint after joint of the fingers and toes shrink up and slowly fall off. The gums are absorbed and the teeth disappear. The nose, the eyes, the tongue, and the palate are all slowly consumed. It is an awful disease. Leprosy is nothing better than a horrible, lingering death. A couple of quotes regarding it. The father of all uncleanness, leprosy. Leprosy, a living death. It is easier to raise the dead than to cure leprosy. Lepers were not just unwell. They didn't just have a sickness or an illness, but they were also unclean. It's one of the reasons that the pictures of these healings, the healings of lepers, are so wonderfully helpful for us. Because we aren't just unwell and sick in our sin. We are ritually unclean before God. We are spiritually dead before Him. Lepers were cast out of the covenant community, they were shunned by all of society, isolated and alone, not allowed to have contact with their people. They could come nowhere near the temple. They were required to remain disheveled and unkept. They were cut off from the congregation. They were cut off from the city by walls. They weren't even allowed into the populated areas. They could live in a community of lepers only and always. There were no exceptions. They were removed from everyday society with tattered clothing And their mouth covered. If anyone was in earshot of them, they had to cover their mouth and shout, unclean, unclean, to notify the person who may not be able to see the evidence of leprosy from a distance, but would hear and know, I want no part of them. I cannot go close to them. They were rejected by everyone. They lost their family. They lost their spouse. They lost their children. They lost their home. They lost their friends. They lost their job. They were isolated from all healthy human contact. If you want to know more about leprosy, go read Leviticus 13 and 14. It reads like an ancient dermatological manual. They're required to stay 50 feet away from everyone. Just going into a building, the whole building was defiled if a leper entered it. If a leper stood under a tree... Everyone else who passed under that tree was defiled and unclean as a result. It was illegal to greet, even waving at, a leper. The religious leaders, especially, they were not allowed to wave at someone who had leprosy. It defiled them. Lepers were victims of more than just the disease, the disease would be bad enough. But leprosy robbed them of their health. And leprosy robbed them of their name. Leprosy robbed them of their occupation. Leprosy robbed them of their hobbies. Leprosy robbed them of their family and all fellowship. It robbed them of their worshiping community. Lepers were considered walking corpses. That's even how Aaron, Moses' brother, referred to their sister Miriam. Numbers 12:12, 12, 12, like one dead, with flesh half consumed a miserable disease numbness the nerves die in the infected areas resulting in extremities falling off one surgeon refers to leprosy as a painless hell painless because the numbness has set in But hell, because of all of the results of the disease. In fact, one surgeon in a third world country, after surgery, so post operative, leper patients would be sent home with a cat to keep the rats away from gnawing at the dying rotten flesh. It is a miserable disease. Other illnesses, other diseases had to be healed, but not leprosy. Leprosy had to be cleansed. If you look back in verses 40 to 45 where this story is told, it doesn't even talk about healing. It's cleansing. You can make me clean. Be cleansed. He was cleansed. Offer for your cleansing What Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Four times. Other illnesses, any other disease, they could be healed, but not leprosy. Because it resulted in a ritual defilement and uncleanness. It had to be cleansed. This interaction, back in verse 40, a leper came to Jesus. It sounds so simple. It is so provocative, terribly offensive. The leper broke through the religious barricade, willing to risk it all. He knew. He was convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt. He needed help. He was helpless. He was hopeless. But he heard about this man. And if this man can heal diseases, In a way that I've heard about, then I'm willing to risk it all. And he breaks the law. He breaks custom in hopes of being made whole again. He was desperate for help and desperate times call for desperate measures. He was willing to do whatever it took. And so he breaks through the religious barricade. And he comes to Jesus in faith. What we see happening here in this leper is belief. In the living God, the Son of God, faith made this leper eager to be healed, to be cleansed. His faith is evident, even if in seed form in this initial plea. If you are willing, you can make me clean. There's faith. He was confident in Christ's ability. He had no doubt. He had heard what he has done. And so he comes saying, I know you're able. I'm not questioning your ability, not in the least bit. But if you're willing, you can make me clean. No question of Jesus' ability. But are you willing? The letter of the law, as written, prevented Jesus from coming into contact with this man because of his uncleanness, because of his defilement. And Jesus violates the ceremonial law, by touching this leper. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. Verse 41. Jesus violates the ceremonial law. How? Because Jesus has the authority to set aside that law that was a mere shadow for redemptive purposes. Jesus is the embodiment of the law. We can, we can understand it better in this way. Imagine coming up on a large intersection and there's been an accident on the other side of the road. And there's a police officer standing in the middle of traffic, motioning for all of the traffic that's on the moving side where the accident hasn't happened to just keep flowing, keep moving. And as you approach the intersection, the light turns from green to yellow to red. The police officer is oblivious to the traffic light and just continues motioning. Everyone, come on. Everyone, come on. What do you do? You keep driving. Why? Because you obey the embodiment of the law, not the letter of the law. Jesus is the embodiment and the enforcer of the law. He's not in opposition to the law, not in any way. Now, he does oppose the hypocritical applications of the law, but he's not in opposition to the law. He actually exposes in situations like this, as well as others, the reality of the law's intent as he reveals his own compassion for this poor leper and countless others. The response of Jesus moved with compassion. Verse 41 Full of pity, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing to be cleansed. The response that Jesus offers to this leper's plea is as astounding as the leper's initial request. It's shocking when we understand the dynamic in that day of the leper and what the law said about what lepers could and could not do to see that he just shows up on the scene A leper came to Jesus, and the way that Jesus responds moved with pity and compassion. Rather than recoiling in contempt, Jesus responds with compassion, gut-wrenching compassion. It's the same type of compassion that Jesus responds to us with. And not because of leprosy, but because of our spiritual leprosy, because we are dead in our sin, we are hopeless apart from him. Jesus is moved with compassion towards us. He stretched out his hand and he touched him. And this touch from Jesus speaks louder than the words that follow. He stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I am willing. Be cleansed. Rather than Jesus being infected by the disease, the leper is infected by Jesus' purity. Jesus' cleanness is what is transferred to the leper. What has only ever been a one-direction path, contaminated to the uncontaminated, diseased to the well, that path is reversed. It's only ever traveled one way, and Jesus touches the leper, taking the disease on himself, as it were, and giving wellness and cleanness in return. There is pity in personal touch, and we see it time and again, this this intimate compassion from Jesus. He did it with Peter's mother-in-law earlier in this passage, verse 31. Here he stretches out his hand, touches the leper, and heals him. Chapter 5, verse 41, he takes a child by the hand, Chapter 6, verse 5, Jesus lays his hands on a few sick people and he heals them. Chapter 7, verse 33, Jesus put his fingers into the ears. After spitting, he touched his tongue and he brings about a healing. In chapter 8, verse 23, he takes the blind man by the hand. In chapter 9, verse 27, Jesus took him by the hand and raised him. Chapter 9, verse 36, Jesus takes a child. Taking a child, he set him before them, taking him into his arms. Chapter 10, verse 16, he took Children into his arms, blessing them, laying his hands on them. Jesus reached out, stretched out his hands, and touched him and said, I am willing to be cleansed. Jesus was desirous of this sick, defiled man. There's no reluctance at all, no recoil. I am willing. Be cleansed. He doesn't question the degree of his faith. Oh, you you think I'm able, but you don't think I'm willing? Jesus responds just with a measure of faith. Oh, I'm willing. Be cleansed. No reluctance. Such a small statement. I am willing. Be cleansed. Such a significant statement, though. He was clean. Now, could Jesus have healed him with a word? Absolutely. Could he have done it even from a distance, from the safe distance, so he himself wasn't defiled? Yeah, without question. But Jesus becomes ritually infected and unclean in order to cleanse the leper. He became sin. God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, 2 Corinthians 5.20, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The picture that we see happening physically with this leper of Jesus absorbing, as it were, the sickness and the disease and giving physical health to this man is a wonderful picture of what is happening when Jesus, who is perfect and knew no sin, was made sin on our behalf. He took on our sin, not being guilty of it, but being responsible for it. And He took it to the cross and He dealt with it there. And all the righteousness that He had earned from the moment of His birth to the point of His death is then credited to us in this wonderful transaction. Christ takes our sin to bring about our cleansing, our purifying, The mind of Christ towards sinners is the mind of Christ that we see displayed towards this leper. I am willing. Be cleansed. And immediately, verse 42, the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. By the word of his power and the pity of his personal touch, Jesus healed a disease for which there was no known cure. He cured this man of one of the most dreaded afflictions of the world at that time. The man who had only ever known staying at a distance, being disheveled and in ragged clothing, separated from everything he knew and loved, shouting, unclean, unclean, when anyone was within earshot. Imagine hearing this man now. I'm clean. I'm clean. Christ has made me well. It looks like that is what he did, though he shouldn't have. Verse 43, Jesus sternly warned him. So included in this idea is a snorting or flaring of the nostrils. Jesus was serious about his obedience after being cleaned. He sternly warned him and he sent him away. He said, say nothing to anyone except go to the priest, offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Show yourself to the priest. Offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded. This is helpful here because we see that what Jesus was doing by interacting with this leper previously, which was against the law as written, Jesus wasn't throwing out this law. He wasn't usurping this law. He was at this point instructing this former leper, now made clean, to obey the law as it applies to leprosy. Literally saying, okay, the, the scriptures are clear. This is how you respond now. Those who have been cleansed must go through these pathways. You must do these things. First things must come first. The ceremonial law was the gospel in bud form. But its full bloom is in Christ. And so there's, there's more, more clarity now in him who came as the full bloom of the gospel the substance of what was previously a shadow. To continue to live with the law as primary is like burning a candle for light underneath the noonday sun. It it makes no sense. But seeing what God has said in his law and seeing who Christ is and seeking to obey Based on who Christ is and what he's done, is the pathway for us to keep the first things first. Say nothing to anyone. We've seen this already in Mark's gospel that Jesus was earnest about guarding the veil of his messianic identity. It needed to be maintained as a secret for some time because people misunderstood the mission. We've already noted that even his disciples misunderstood the mission. But the masses for sure, the crowds misunderstood the mission. They desired deliverance, which wasn't bad. They wanted deliverance from disease and demons and Rome, and that's why they're coming to him. But they needed deliverance from their sins, and they were not yet convinced of this, which is why Jesus said, I must proclaim the truth to them. Jesus' mission was to convince them of their need by proclaiming the truth. They didn't desire deliverance from their sin to the degree that they ought to, so he was determined to go elsewhere to these other towns and preach the truth, the good news that he came to save sinners. It's not the righteous who need a doctor, but sinners must repent. Which is a good time for us to pose the question. It's easy for us to look and to see, oh, the disciples are really confused, and the crowds were looking for Deliverance from everything but their sin, it seems. But let's ask the question of ourselves. What do you want Jesus to do for you? Are you looking for temporal deliverance in this area or that area? Make life a little bit smoother? He came, the God-man, Christ the Lord, Jesus came to save sinners. There is a priority of proclamation in this man, the proclamation of the truth that he came to save sinners. Now, this messianic secret is no longer in effect in our day. Jesus's mission did come to full fruition. He did go to the cross and die. We can be helped by Ecclesiastes 3.7. There is a time to be silent and a time to speak. And there are good men who have more zeal than discretion, like this leper. It's possible to aid the enemy of truth by poorly timed acts and words. So just because the messianic secret is no, no longer in place doesn't mean that we just run around saying everything to everybody in any way. It still requires discretion and wisdom. Prudence must be allowed to with regard to the truth. I mean... It, it's shocking to me still to read passages like this and to hear Jesus say, don't tell anybody. Right? I grew up singing, go tell it on the mountain. And there's a truth to that, but there's a time to be silent and a time to speak. I would say by far the majority of us are too prone to not speak. So we could read Ecclesiastes 3.7 in a couple different ways. A time to be silent and a time to speak for those of us who want to say more. Or there's a time to be silent and a time to speak for those of us who would like to stay quiet and not speak when we ought to. But we want to seek balance. How does that happen? By keeping first things first. By having a priority of prayer with our Father. By being committed to the proclamation of truth. As we close, leprosy is a vivid, symbolic picture of sin. It is an outward, visible sign of inward corruption. I mentioned earlier that leprosy, as the disease, affects the entirety of the person, just like sin you're not just affected by sin here or there. You're definitely not as affected, we're not as affected as we think we are by sin out there. Sin is in here. And we are affected by it. Apart from Christ, we are decaying forms of walking death. Living corpses, like leprosy. There are some similarities and some dissimilarities when it comes to sin and leprosy. The similarities, sin is like leprosy in that it is a deep-seated disease infecting every part of our being. Our heart, our hearts are affected by sin, our minds are affected by sin, our consciences are affected by sin, our understanding, our memory, our affections, our will, they are all affected by sin. Sin, like leprosy, makes us unfit and disqualified from God's family. Sin, like leprosy, is incurable by any earthly physician. But sin is unlike leprosy as well. Because with leprosy, not everybody gets it. But with sin, there are no exemptions. Every one of us are affected by it. No one is exempt from sin, and no one is exempt from sin's effects. Think about this story here in Mark chapter 1. The leper begins as an outcast on the outside. He ends up on the inside because he's clean. But due to the leper's complacent disregard for Christ's command to tell no one, Jesus begins our story inside the village, and he ends up, on the outside of the city, away from everyone. He went out and began to proclaim it freely, the leper did, and spread the news around to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city, but stayed out in unpopulated areas. We see this switch taking place, which is what happened on the cross. Jesus took our place. We were cast out separated from God because of our sin. And Jesus took our place there in order that we might be brought near. For Christ in his life, he was committed to keeping the main things the main things, keeping first things first, yet never unwilling to show pity and compassion. When the leper shows up in verse 30, a leper came to Jesus That's not the time that Jesus ran away to a secluded place to pray. He was never unwilling to show pity and compassion, yet always committed to the priority of prayer and to the proclamation of the truth. The leper had an understanding of how bad he was. But he lacked a confidence of Christ's willingness to save him. We need an understanding of how bad off we are apart from Christ. And apart from Christ, we can't really grasp it. But the truth of his word is clear. We are doomed to die an eternal death. It's hard to imagine things being any worse than that. But not only do we need an understanding of how bad we are, we need confidence in Christ's ability and Christ's willingness to save. There are two dangers when it comes to thinking about our sin, at least two. And they're opposite issues, but they're in the same ditch. On the one hand, you'd be completely foolish and wrong to say or insinuate or think, I am not a sinner. Of course you are. But it's just as wrong to think I'm too bad of a sinner. I say those are opposite issues. I'm not a sinner, I'm too bad of a sinner, but they're in the same ditch of pride. I have no sin, or my sin's so bad, God's not enough. Cory Tim Boone said it well. There is no pit so deep that God is not deeper still. No matter how bad of a sinner, We may be, Christ is a greater Savior. He is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient towards you. Not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. God, our Savior, desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. We need an understanding of how bad off we are, but we also need confidence, faith in God that his son is both able and willing to save us from our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The leper in our story is like a picture. We can think of it more like a mirror. Every one of us either has been or still is in the leper's place. Helpless, hopeless, apart from Christ. As we plan to come to the table in a few moments, if you are still in your sin, will you not do as the leper did? Receive the cleansing hand of Christ? If not, why not? His compassion and pity towards this leper is extended towards you as a sinner. He is willing. You can be clean. He is able. Consider the reality that this poor leper had on the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. The leper shows up on the scene, says, if you're willing, be cleansed. And pity and compassion come gushing forth from the Savior. Every one of us has that capacity. You can move the heart of Christ the Savior by believing Him. He is bent towards compassion and mercy and love and grace towards His people. Not only that, we have advantages over the leper in our story, we have advantages in the area of precedent. Outside of Naaman, maybe another example or two, leprosy had never been cleansed, ever. And still the leper came and said, if you're willing. Millions have believed and repented and have been saved. The precedent is there. You will not be any different. All who come to Christ will find a refuge for their soul. You will find salvation in him if you turn from your sin and trust in him. But not only do you have an advantage with regard to precedent, you have an advantage regarding promise. There are no promises to be cleansed from leprosy. Not one. And yet the leper came, taking the chance. But the scriptures, on the other hand, are full of promises to all those who come to Christ, why not come to him? Why not fling yourself onto to His mercy? If you are in your sin today, if you are not in Christ, you are in your sin. Why not fling yourself onto the mercy of the Lord? Prove that the passage here is true, that Jesus responds in mercy and compassion. Come to Him, turning from your sin and putting your faith and your trust in Him. Come to Christ. And if you've come to Christ, then come to the table in just a few moments. The body and the blood of our Lord are represented in the elements in order for us to commemorate Christ's death, burial, resurrection, and soon return. We have the privilege of coming together, acknowledging our union with Christ, and the blessing of fellowship that we have one with another. We take of his body that was broken for us. We drink of the cup of his blood that was shed for the remission of sin. And we glory, revel in the reality of the gospel and the comfort and knowledge of sins forgiven. If you're in Christ, please do come and worship him at the table. If you're not in Christ, the table is not for you. But he who is represented here at the table is for you, and he stands ready with his arm reached forth, ready to show you compassion and forgiveness. So do come to Christ. Run to him and find forgiveness for your sins. He stands ready to save and has promised to save everyone who comes. He will in no way cast any one of us out if we come to him believing and trusting If you're in your sin, turn from it and come to Christ. If you're in Christ, come to the table and commemorate His life and death, His burial and His resurrection, and the promise of His coming. Parents, you have the responsibility to give guidance to your children. You know where they stand with the Lord. Guide them wisely. Be careful even with your own life. Everyone, we're warned in Scripture not to take in an unworthy manner, to to come and to commemorate in an unworthy manner. We don't want to do that. We want to be sure that we're living honest lives before God and among one another, but we do want to come and to commemorate our Savior together, acknowledging the union that we have with Him and the union that we have with one another. I'm going to pray then the pianist will be playing. It'll give us an opportunity to come and to take and return to eat and drink here at the table and to return to our seats. And after everyone has had a chance to take of the supper, we will stand and sing in closing. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for your word, for the truth in it, that you have both preserved it for us and provided it to us. We thank you that you have given us help through your Holy Spirit, illuminating our hearts and our minds that we might understand it. We long for more understanding. And God, we pray and long in our desires for grace to apply the truth of your word. God, you deserve all worship and honor and glory both now and forever. We pray, God, that as we come and take of your body and take the cup, that you would be honored and that we would be consecrated and sanctified together as your people. We pray, God, that you will help us to be committed to the priority of prayer in our life that we would be committed to the primacy of proclamation in our lives with our words and our deeds. And God, that we would be ready like you are to show pity and compassion to those around us. God, I pray that you would work through your spirit, changing hearts and lives even now for those who stand outside. God, make the great exchange with them this morning. And join us by your spirit as the rest of us celebrate the great exchange that has happened. We thank you for Christ and for his righteousness. We pray in his name. Amen.